The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, the 11th of July, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I realize I said the date a little bit differently, but I don't want to... I don't want to say the 7-Eleven thing for free. I don't want to give anyone free advertising. Although, I do appreciate with the 7-Eleven stores, they tell you how tall you are when you walk in. That is a nice little feature they give you. I notice they don't give you your weight, what with the consumption of Slurpees and that weird spinning dog-type tubular meat thing. That may maybe wouldn't redound as gloriously upon the 7-Eleven as just the height thing. Changes less. But I don't want to talk about that today. I want to talk about breaking news about a 3,000 year old civilization archaeologists in israel are challenging everything we know about the philistines and by everything we know i mean both things we know one they had goliath two they were barbarians you know that phrase he's a bit of a philistine meaning a a roughneck or uncultured perhaps you remember the appropriate passage in portrait of Dorian Gray. Oh, Basil is the best of fellows, but he seems to me to be just a bit of a Philistine. Since I have known you, Harry, I've discovered that. Always a bit of a Philistine. The kind of person who would call someone a Philistine would proceed with a bit of a Philistine. There's a touch of the Philistine about him. But now the archaeological dig upending this. Guardian headline, Philistines more sophisticated than given credit for, say, researchers. Discovery of 3,000-year-old cemetery will dispel many myths and may force rethinking of popular insult. So what is the evidence of the Philistines not being barbarians, being couth, not uncouth? Well, the lead investigator, the lead archaeologist, Lawrence Stagger, of Harvard says that the cosmopolitan life they found is so much more elegant and worldly and connected with other parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. He went on to say, They have jewelry, they have weapons, they have all kinds of things that are quite, you know, fairly fairly rare. Uh, but uh, it shows that, uh, you know, they were uh, burying them with offerings that were quite uh, valuable. Other conclusions that archaeologists have reached, another archaeologist said, there's no evidence of any kind of trauma on the bones from war or interpersonal violence. Also, they discovered a decorated juglet. Now, as soon as I heard they found the juglet, I'm like, well, there goes the sophistication claim. They're into the insane clown posse. No, that's a juglet. This is a juglet, a small vial, which contained perfume. And in one case, the perfume was found pointing at the nostril of the deceased so the deceased could smell perfume throughout eternity. They also discovered a large array of arrows for different purposes, finely crafted arrows and arrowheads. So intent are they in contradicting this commonly held belief. By the way, commonly held, every reference to Philistines being synonymous with barbarians had to include the definition, like I had to define it for you. Listen, I have no slingshot in this fight over what the Philistines were or weren't like. But I do get the sense that what archaeologists like is they like digging up stuff, so turning up artifacts, but also upending expectations. For instance, if our concept of the Philistines was the exact opposite of barbarian, let's say we all thought the Philistines were Bo Brummels, were 
bunch of fancy pants-like guys. We could look at the stuff they found and also say this upends everything we thought of the Philistines. They were buried with weapons. They draped themselves in jewelry like those modern Philistines, the real housewives of New Jersey. They buried their dead with perfume because apparently their bodies stank. You know what? I'm sorry. I take it all back, Philistines. I'm sure you are as sophisticated as could be for your time, perhaps like the sophisticates of our time, marked by either our gaudy consumption, which signals wealth, or our conscious embrace of minimalism and sustainability, which also signals wealth and sophistication. And I just say good luck to you, future archaeologists, with our lot. In the spiel today, unity in the face of police excess, but first she has traveled a billion and a half miles and will soon one day be destroying herself so as not to spread a single microbe. Let us now listen to what Juno has to say. The other day on this program, we were talking about the Juno space thing capsule. Is it a capsule? We're going to find out. Because even though I was popping off about not liking the fact that they destroyed this beautiful little capsule for the sake of a couple microbes and Europa, I realized perhaps there is a lot to learn about Juno and the exploration of Jupiter. So joining me now is Summer Ash. She is an, I hope it's not overstating it to say that she is an expert in astrophysics. She is the director of outreach for Columbia's Department of Astronomy. Hello. Let us talk about Juno. Let's. You're an astrophysicist, which means mostly looking through the telescope type person. Particularly me when I did it, but um, you can be a theorist. Mm -hmm. So not everybody looks through the telescopes or some people just use other people's data. Is what Juno is doing, is that the best way to describe that is that astrophysics. Well, sometimes it t- comes down to semantics, but it's more planetary science, Okay, I think. But a lot of the things that Juno is studying, um, especially magnetic fields, that's something that's important across all space fields, yes. and especially in astrophysics. Yes, and indie rock. But are there, or indie, I guess, pop, but are there questions that after Juno's done, we will certainly have answers to? I don't think there's a guarantee, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of strange how long Jupiter has been a part of our culture and a part of our scientific endeavors and how much we still don't know about it. What don't we know? We still have no idea if it has a core. Really? Or I mean, there is a core. There's a center of the planet, but we have no idea what's there, whether it's liquid, whether it's solid, how dense it is, what its composition is. How is Juno going to find that out? So it has a ton of different instruments on it. One is specifically a microwave instrument that will be able to see through the cloud layers. And that's mostly actually to detect the composition of the deeper cloud layers. But then it also has a ton of like magnetometers and different instruments that are going to be studying the magnetic field, which also will tell us more about what could be causing it. So like it's going to be a combination of all the different instruments that will tell us what likely lies deep inside the planet, and then exactly how that influences the magnetic field around Jupiter, which is a pretty dangerous zone for and, Juno. And, and, and for B, it has to be there. We can't do this from here on Earth. We have to have this thing travel a billion and a half miles to get these facts back to us. Yeah, because Juno is actually going to be flying through the radiation belts. So Earth has the Van Allen belts, mm-hmm. which is part of our magnetosphere, and Jupiter's uh, exposure, like radiation that Juno is going to get is the equivalent of 
100 medical x-rays? Yes. 100 million medical x-rays. I heard that stat. On a human. So basically, I don't know that I could relate to it, but yeah, yeah it's a lot but it's, of It's our magnetic field on crack. <laughs> yes, our magnetic field on crack. I would sign up for that ride at Disneyland. Um, <laughs> and, and this took how many years to get it up there? It took five. It actually took yeah. one of the most direct approaches, but also that was because of the planetary alignment. So it launched in August 2011. And it's worked pretty well. I mean, pretty much according to plan. And the, it, the interesting thing to me is it's not just where we aim it. It has to take into effect the gravitational pull of Jupiter, maybe some other planets along the way. I don't even know. So it seems like there's all these calculations. All right, here, we're going to shoot it here, and but we think Jupiter's going to move it there, and then it will, and then there's this slingshot thing. So even if it wasn't actually bringing back information, just to get it in place is kind of an amazing achievement. Absolutely. There's a really funny thing, too, that we still struggle with in math in general, the three-body problem. So modeling anything, predicting gravitational effects between any two bodies, no problem. Throw a third one in there, yeah. all hell breaks loose for how precise you can predict things and, and in what time frame. And then you think of the solar system, and not only do you have the sun and you have massive planet like Jupiter, um, but Jupiter has moons and Jupiter has a ring. And Jupiter has hundreds of moons. Jupiter yeah, less has, than 100, but more than 60 well, or 70. But aren't there a lot of things that could be moons that are surrounding Jupiter? We will know more, yes. thanks to Juno, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's got a dust ring. And so, yeah, everything pulls on everything. It doesn't yeah. matter how big or how small. And so that's also one of the things. Another way they're going to find out the core is that they are going to detect the gravitational, minuscule gravitational differences in Juno's orbit because mm -hmm. when it flies over a more dense part of Jupiter, it's going to get more of when a tug. Juno does, yes. Yeah. yeah, and when it gets less of a tug, so we will measure this ping from Juno that will tell us, I got pulled more, I got pulled less, and that'll help map out the gravitational field, too. That is very cool. Jupiter is the first planet, the oldest planet in the solar system. We think so. We think so. Is that true of solar systems? The oldest planet is the biggest? Is that just a coincidence? I don't think we can say for sure. I think what's really interesting for us and what we want to find out more about is that Jupiter for us is the biggest, yeah. but it's not the closest. Right. But by composition, because it's mostly hydrogen and helium, we think that it sucked up everything that was left over that the sun didn't get, and then everybody else got the leftovers of that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the exoplanet systems that we found so far, it's easier to find big planets close in. So we're finding Jupiter-sized planets and bigger closer in. Huh. And so it's a question of where do they form and do they migrate and do they, you know, get destroyed and reform in the process. So it's, that's other questions about planetary formation in general. I know Jupiter is uh, has a strong gravitational pull. A person weighing 100 pounds on Earth would weigh 240 pounds on Jupiter, I think was the statistic I saw. It all depends if you eat breakfast or not. We know that. <laughs> so you talked about all the gases. Is there solid ground? Could you set foot on Jupiter? That's what we don't know. Oh, we don't we even do know, know We do know. So underneath the cloud layers, but not very far down, the uh, hydrogen is under enough pressure that it's liquid. Uh -huh. And so that's what's also helping create a lot of the magnetic fields. It can conduct electricity. But we don't know beyond that what the density of Jupiter does and if there happens to be even a rocky core, because a lot of, you know, the inner planets, um, Venus and once Mars and Earth all have rocky cores with gas around them. What do you mean once Mars? It used to? Yeah. I mean, it has a very, very, very thin one right now. Oh. It That's why they have dust storms, because the, the, there is an atmosphere. It disintegrated over the years, the core? Evaporated, oh, it probably. Evaporated. Ah, interesting. The red spot. 
Is this a big question mark? I'm fascinated by the red spot. And I say don't change. I know there's a lot of pressure, but I think Jupiter should love its red spot and not get that corrected. But anyway, what do we know about the red spot? That's like in the solar system yearbook. Everybody else says, Jupiter, you know, don't change. Stay the exactly. same. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Have a great summer. Yeah, never change. Well, the red spot's totally what got me into Jupiter in the first place, too. Yeah. Like, Jupiter's always been my favorite planet, and the red spot was was the kicker. We know that it's a giant storm, and even I think Galileo knew that it was there back when he had his tiny little telescope. So we've known about it for over 400 years. And I know when I was growing up, it was roughly three times the Earth's size in diameter. And now it's like a little over one. So it's shrinking. And also one of the things I learned, I did um, an article looking at all the different other missions that had been to Jupiter before, because mm-hmm. there were eight others that had either flown by and one that stayed, Galileo. But even during the Voyager missions, they took pictures of Jupiter. And at the time, the red spot was in a white band of clouds. And then by the time we got more pictures from Cassini, the red spot was in an orange band of clouds. Huh. Do the people in NASA, the people who are experts on these things, do they view Galileo as a success, Cassini as a success, all these past ones as successes? Has there ever been a failure? Among those, those are all smashing successes. Galileo was there from 95 to 2003. Yeah. And it was our workhorse for Jupiter. We learned so many things about Jupiter thanks to Galileo. And Cassini is still doing great stuff at Saturn, even though it's going to get decommissioned, I think, in like less than a year, a little over a year. Both of those were amazing successes. I think the only like failures we've had are a couple of the ones that like didn't make it to Mars or didn't land as softly as they should have. Yeah. But otherwise... Most of the planetary missions have been fantastic. Cassini's still working. Galileo, what happened to Galileo? We also killed Galileo by slamming it into Jupiter. And this brings up the thing that jumped out at me. Really, microbes are going to wreck a moon? Microbes are really small by definition, and moons of Jupiter are quite big. Moons of every planet. Actually, Europa, I was just reading, is actually smaller than our moon. But really, a microbe is going to screw up a whole planet? That's what happened to Earth. What? Microbes. So I'm glad. Microbes are why we're here. Okay. So then we should put microbes out there. Without microbes, there'd be no Galileo and Juno mission to rob them of microbes when you (laughs) think about it. Absolutely. But so the microbes on Earth giving rise to us is like N equals one. It's our one example of life evolving in the solar system, galaxy, universe. So we want to know if it happens more than once. And so both Europa around Jupiter and Enceladus around Saturn um, are prime examples of where we have detected liquid water. And so we want to be able to study it without bringing contamination from Earth. But what's the chance that it would crash into Europa just by accident? I mean, I mean, it's probably very small, but like I was saying with the gravitational, everything pulls on everything mm -hmm. that eventually it's going to run out of gas. And also, eventually, Jupiter's radiation is going to irradiate all of its instruments. So it will be less controllable. It's not just that microbes can contaminate anywhere in space. I mean, we're crashing Juno into Jupiter. The concern isn't that we'll contaminate Jupiter. It's specific interstellar bodies where we have detected some water and where there might be life. And so this is why people talk about, I mean, very 
either far-fetched or far in the future, what if we have a colony on Mars? You know, someone asked me, how can we on the one hand talk about having a colony on Mars and on the other hand be so concerned about microbes in Jupiter? But that's the answer. We're not concerned about microbes in Jupiter. We're concerned about microbes on Europa. Yeah, we're concerned about microbes on Europa. And actually, I mean, there is concern or there is a question of whether or not life did exist on Mars. And a lot of people think that we've potentially already contaminated Mars. Really? Um, like with the rovers that we've sent. So there is no guarantee that we'll, if we do detect something, that we'll be able to distinguish it from what was on Earth. But well, I think there will have, might be ways to do that. The so. best practices weren't in place when we put the rovers, or were we just like, yeah, we know, but we really need to study Mars? No, actually, I think it's more since the very first Mars landings, we've learned so much more about extremophiles. And how bad we are. Well, no, just, <laughs> just how awesome how crazy places on earth can be and life can still live Yeah, next to like the thermal vents in the ocean and in Antarctica or through ice things and things that live without light yeah. and that kind of thing. And so it's hard to say what can still survive a spacecraft journey through space. Got it. It's kind of nuts. When you see the success, the apparent success so far, it's been so successful and it's so exciting. Does it break your heart a little when you look at the pipeline for what we have? It does. It seems you like NASA's been largely yeah. It seems like NASA has been largely defunded, and we don't have any of these uh, interplanetary missions scheduled for a little while. Well, we have a lot of studies going on. We have a couple of cool telescopes coming down the line. So JWST, which is like the Hubble replacement, but it's going to actually be more in the infrared and it's going to be farther away. So we can't ever fix it. So we have to get it right the first time. Yeah, That's going to be really exciting. I know there's a ton of studies going on, which is how these missions always start. Everybody looks into what do we want to do next? How how should we go about doing it? So I think there's um, there's like a Europa Clipper mission, which would be a mission to Europa itself yeah, to try and study that. And there's all sorts of crazy ways that people are coming up with how we could actually explore Europa's ocean. So by actually sending down like a moon rover, but when you put it down in the water, it actually inverts upside down and uses buoyancy to float back up. So the wheels are on the bottom of the ice and then you can drive it. Oh, that's cool. That, that'd Isn't be cool that here. Yeah. I want to do that here. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. they're testing the stuff like that in Antarctica. That's awesome. So give us the timeline on how long Juno's going to be doing its thing and when, we, when could we uh, circle on our calendar for the days we start getting a lot smarter. <laughs> Let's see. So it launched in August of 2011. And then the 4th of July this year, five years, almost five years later, it got to Jupiter, slammed on the brakes for 35 minutes enough to decelerate to get captured into Jupiter's orbit. But what they're doing is they're actually doing two orbits that are much larger than the final orbits that they're going to do for the rest of the mission. And they're doing that in order to, first of all, just check out that all the instruments are okay. Mm -hmm. And then check out that all the science instruments are working the way they're supposed to do because there's a limited amount of the actual mission orbits that we're going to have between now and February 2018. How long does it take to do a full orbit of Jupiter, a planet so, a thousand times Earth's size? Well, the particular, you, you can orbit, you can make up an orbit depending on what you want to do. So what Juno is doing is these first two orbits are 53 and a half day orbits. Mm-hmm. 
and then it's going to go into a 14-day orbit. But even that 14-day orbit is really, really elliptical. So what it does is it's going to fly through the danger zone of the radiation and take all of these measurements around the equator of Jupiter, fly back out its polar orbit, and then it's going to go way out, outside of the range of the radiation. So it's only once per orbit that it's getting bombarded at a level that's really dangerous. Well, Kenny Loggins said it first, but it's, it obtains to this day. Welcome to the danger zone. Little known fact, Brian Adams offered that song, turned it down because of the warlike message of Top Gun. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Summer, I think we've taken a little bit of a detour, unlike the Juno spacecraft. That is my fault. I want to thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me. I love talking about space. Summer Ash is the director of outreach for Columbia's Department of Astronomy. She writes about science, too. She loves Jupiter. Thank you, Summer. Thank you. And now the spiel. Things aren't as bad as in the 60s. This was an observation that was decried almost as soon as President Obama said it. When we start suggesting that somehow... There's this enormous polarization, and we're back to the situation in the 60s, and that's just not true. Not as bad as the 60s. Cold comfort on issues like secondhand smoke, child safety seats, the widespread use of asbestos, and race relations. I want to stipulate Obama's right, but it almost doesn't matter. I mean, 45% of the 60s took place before discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin was even outlawed, right? July 1964, that's when LBJ signed the Civil Rights Bill. And I want to remember that legislation. I want to hold on to it. I'll get back to it. But I want to talk about another point that Obama made. This point wasn't disagreed with so much as it was glossed over. As painful as this week has been, I firmly believe that America is not as divided as some have suggested. And then he went on to say, but there's unity in recognizing that this is not how we want our communities to operate. This is not who we want to be as Americans. Unity, the necessity of unity, the role of unity. It's a word that came up a lot in the last couple days. But can either of these candidates, among the least popular, least trusted, and most divisive in history, somehow become the president that heals a nation desperately searching for unity? And it's my hope, again, after this tremendous crisis that's occurred, this tragedy, that our country will focus more on unity and not division. And That's a form of unity as well, to acknowledge a particular kind of privilege, a particular sort of perspective. That was from just one program, Meet the Press. There you heard moderator Chuck Todd and guests, Senator Bob Corker and Professor Michael Eric Dyson. I would submit, however, that you don't need unity. And that's a good thing that you don't need it because you're never going to get it. So long as one wackadoo former representative perceives that he could goose his radio call-in show ratings by saying this is a war, we won't have unity. So long as the once respectable and legitimately accomplished former mayor of New York City goes on two-thirds of the Sunday shows spewing a mishmash of statistical and racial nonsense, we are not going to have unity. But that's okay because we don't need unity. Here's what we need. Laws and rules. 
And the good thing is we actually are getting laws and rules. We're getting body cams. We're getting police retraining. We're getting civilian review boards. We're getting oversight. We're getting unbiased or less biased prosecutors. We're getting all that. Sometimes we're getting it in fits and starts. Sometimes we're getting it in the same instances as we're being denied it. East Baton Rouge, prosecutor recuses himself into the investigation of Alton Sterling's death. East Baton Rouge, police officers' body cams fell off. Both fell off, apparently, right before Alton Sterling's death. That is at least what a prominent Democrat, Louisiana State Representative C. Denise Marcel, is saying. But President Obama convened a panel, and solutions of that panel are indeed filtering out into communities. I saw a lot of experts talking about policing, and the actual police who are really doing things in communities are all on the same page about what needs to be done. Now, you do have rogue police officers. You do have loudmouth union representatives contradicting that. But the actual leaders who will institute actual policy change are all talking about change. And there's another interesting, horrible, but interesting aspect to the phenomena we're seeing now. Death at the hands of police, as recorded on cell phones or broadcast to Facebook Live, it's a really odd problem in that viewing the death makes you feel hopeless, yet the very fact that it's viewable, that is the quality that should make us most hopeful. There have always been this many deaths, actually almost certainly many more deaths of people at the hands of cops. We don't know. Quite shamefully, we don't keep accurate statistics on this very vital thing, but we're finally now able to document it. And it tells us something about our humanity that we're so shocked by a single incident or horribly two incidents when it happens in one week. It's grueling to go through and live through, but it's also the only process that we can rely on to ever get to the solution. And we do want this process to be solved. And I mean we. I believe President Obama when he says this isn't who we are or who we want to be. The vast majority of us. It's not all of us. There will forever be disunity because we fail to realize this. And this is important. Most often, progress doesn't stem from unity. Unity stems from progress. Let's go back to the civil rights bill. It was opposed by almost a third of the House and a third of the Senate. Yet today, only a staunch libertarian or avowed racist would dare voicing opposition to it. We did not have unity then. What we had were laws and reforms and change, and the unity came after. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson, who has been called both uncouth and raffish. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, bit of a barbarian. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, a body vulgarian, The Gist. We regard ourselves as dandies or poppin' jays. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.